If you would, turn in your Bible to Lamentations chapter 5. Playing I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow During the Time of Reflection is rather tempting. I want to sing when I hear that melody. That's fantastic, wouldn't it? Lamentations chapter 5. Today is our final Sunday in Lamentations, and you nearly missed that because in verses 17, 18, and 19, there are three words that almost turned into their own sermon yesterday. Um, but here we, we arrive at the final, final passage from this great lament. Jeremiah has poured out his heart in lament. He acknowledges the pain as God's people have been carried away. We've learned that prior to being carried away into exile, the people of God were carried away with a fascination for the thoughts of a lost and dying world. So it is with the church today. That as the church dwindles in some respects, numerically and otherwise, that all is precipitated by generations of looking to the world as to how to perceive God and how He works in His world and apart from His Word. Now here we find the people of God and the city of God have been humbled and they've been brought to nothing. In Lamentations chapter 2, verse 15, we remember Jeremiah wrote, Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all of the earth? We've seen that God is faithful to do all that He has spoken in His Word. We see that first in the reality that God brought His judgment against His people. Sometimes God's faithfulness is judging His own people. Verse 17 of chapter 2, The Lord has done what He has purposed. He has carried out His Word, which He commanded long ago. And we also see that God will execute justice on those that He uses as instruments of judgment against His own people. We have in this one letter, I think a great defense, of, and we've talked about this, of the doctrine of divine concurrence. That is, that men act. The Babylonians had pillaged this town, besieged it, taken over Jerusalem, and they thought they were doing it for their own political ends. And they were. But all the while, God had a purpose. And that purpose was to chastise His people. To deal with them severely because they had severely left His Word. What we learn here is that men act, but God is sovereign over their actions, yet in a way that He is responsible for none of the evil, and yet He will bring about judgment against those who harm His people. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 64-66 through 66. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens, O Lord. Now all of this, of course, we've learned, had come to pass because of the sins of the people. They had left the Word of God. Verse 16 of chapter 5 that we dealt with last week. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us! For we have sinned. Again, God is faithful. We may leave His Word, and often do. And when we do that, we do it at our own peril because God is faithful to bring all of His children in conformity to the image of Christ. And so, Jeremiah writes in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 3, "...the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning." Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations, not only here, but throughout all of Scripture, uh, Rogrup has pointed out, has a, a particular structure, a fourfold uh, movement. That is, lament teaches us to keep turning to God in prayer when difficult things beset our lives 
not to run from God, but we're to run to Him, turning to Him in prayer, that we can come before God and bring our complaints boldly. Jeremiah has used very vivid and bold language. There's language in Lamentations that as I've studied this passage out, it's made me wince and made me think, I don't want to have to utter these things in front of an assembly of people of varying ages and gender and all of that. This, there's some embarrassing language here. God's never embarrassed by what we face, is He? God wants us to turn to Him and to boldly bring our complaints. And that's the next step, to ask boldly, to cry out to God, to, to lament over what is broken, but to ask with boldness, knowing... I, I think sometimes we come to the particular things we were talking about. I don't want to get bogged down here because we're going to deal with this here in a little bit more. We're talking about that the, the church is in a lamentable state in America today. And friends, that's not a horrible thing that we lament over the church because you know what we get to do when we come to the point that we have turned to God in a time of lament and we have brought our complaint that the church is in decline in some respect. That is a perfect time not to shrink away and think, oh, what shall we do? It's a perfect time to come before the living God knowing that He can restore anything that He wants at any moment and to ask boldly for that reality for the saints today. And then the final move, and I think this is much of where we will be today, is to keep trusting the Lord day by day, come what may. It's the expression that we find here. Would you rise to your feet with all of that in mind as we read one more time Lamentations chapter 5. I always come to these final sermons feeling like I'm leaving an old friend, but we may come back one day. Lamentations chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look, see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us! For we have sinned. And this is where we start today. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals, foxes, prowl over it. But You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do You forget us forever? Why do You forsake us for so many days? Restore us to Yourself, O Lord that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. Beloved, these are God's words to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before You this morning thankful for the grace of hearing these words. Might they cause us to come to repentance, acknowledging our own sinful inclinations. Might we come before You today being transformed by the power of Your Spirit, Father. Might we give all of our lives to You. Might we rejoice in what it is You are doing as You sit on Your throne even yet. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Jeremiah has been turning to prayer, bringing his complaints, asking boldly, and here he holds out hope, finally, to the nation, and really to all people of faith in every age. This final stanza, these final few verses, 
Teach us to look to the living God and to keep trusting. But the first thing that we see in these verses is the consequence of sin. Last week, we ended with verse 16. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. But here, the prophet connects. He moves forward from just the reality that the crown of righteousness has fallen and that we have sinned against Him, that the nation had left His Word, which is the common problem of all of humanity. But here, he, he, he connects that reality of sin with the suffering that we experience. Look at the threefold four in verses 17 and 18. For our, hearts has, our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals, foxes prowl over it. Our hearts had become sick. Their eyes had grown dim. The meeting place of God was laid waste. Sin brings suffering. With all of the issues that rage in our time, the interesting thing, the thing that should shock us is not that we come to this passage on a Sunday morning and that the Bible is honest enough with us and that God is telling us yet afresh and anew that sin is the problem that rages in our day. That The oddity is that if we go into the culture around us today, no one is speaking that truth. There is no political candidate that says sin is the issue here. There are few in our institutions who will even, even utter that reality. We are consumed with our suffering. It was C.S. Lewis that notably said that it is pain, suffering, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Friends, do you know how deaf we've become? We're so consumed with our suffering but we don't want to give credence to the reality that all of that suffering flows from the life of sin. You see, Satan's cunning, isn't he? Do you remember back among his first lies, he says to Eve as he's tempting her, uh, verse 3 of chapter 4 of Genesis says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. The consequences won't be that devastating. The, 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 the reality is, God is trying to just keep you morally over here, uh, away from the, the, the tree, but, but really the consequence that He's spoken to you is not true. Satan in that moment is calling God a liar, all the while Satan is the one who is deceiving. And what we find in our lives is the reality that sin really is devastating. That that day when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and consumed the fruit of the tree as God had forbidden, they died spiritually. Thanatos. Dead. Separated from God. The relationship between God and men not to be fixed ever by men. You see, friends, we live in a time where everything around us is affected by sin. Our suffering is an outworking of Adam and Eve's first rebellion. And it's compounded by every subsequent generation proving out one fact, and that is we as human beings are sold under sin. I appreciated so much what Chad said this morning as to our reason for having a time of confession to confront the reality that there are those here in our midst this morning that don't know Christ. And that the reality is even in Christ that we have sin. And the culmination between those two things is that human beings cannot set themselves free from sin. We face a problem that we cannot remedy. You see, we are subject to all manner of losses and disappointments in this life. Poverty, friends, possessions, health, money, comforts, and so on are stripped away, are ruined. And some people hold out a type of Christianity that says, cheer up, good brother. It's okay. But the reality for those of us who live in the Word of God is that the pains of this life are exacerbated because we know this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. We see things as they should be, not only as they are. 
You see, the reality, the most lamentable thing in our day is this, that the decline of true religion, the withholding of God's favor, the absence of God's power, the grieving of God's Spirit, the emptiness and coldness of worship are really at the heart of what I think Jeremiah is lamenting, and so it is in our day. Friends, we shouldn't lament decline of religion in general. Humans set up false religions all the time. And if those things fall away, and I believe that largely that's what's happening in America, the moment that a a mainline denomination goes liberal, do you know what starts to happen? Because when we depart from the Word of God, there is no power in the church anymore. We should never lament a general sense that religion is dying away because it is dying away because God's going to establish His kingdom and will rule forever. But we should lament the reality that true religion, genuine worship, has started to fade over generations in our land. And do you know what humans do in response to the fading of genuine religion? Inevitably, somebody will say, I have an idea, we can fix it. I promise you that the promises of men never come true. We don't have ideas that will fix our problems. Maybe in the here and now, maybe in the short term, but not eternally. Here is the picture, ultimately, that I want you to see from Lamentations chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18 and the the consequences. Friends, this is a reality that I think most of us in this room don't have a clear vision of. And that is that Zion, Jerusalem, was beautiful to the people of God at one time. And some might think, well, is... Is Jeremiah aiming at the fact that the buildings are beautiful in Zion? Nope. They were. But that wasn't really the crux of the issue. Those were merely tools to point to a greater glory. And the glory of Zion was in the fact that she was filled with people. And some of you may say, well, I remember a time in this church when the pews were filled. But God's people and God Himself never settle for mere warm bodies in the pew. Not just were the seats filled, not just was the temple thronging with people. They weren't individuals who showed up and said, I'm here for some entertainment. Can you imagine if a Jew would have shown up to the sacrificial, to the temple where the sacrificial system was instituted and sat down and said, Make me happy? Would have thumped hit idiot on the head and said, go on. That is not the purpose of why we gather. We gather because God is holy and we are not and He has prescribed a way that we come back to Him. The beauty of Zion was that she was filled with people who called out <clears throat> that the book be opened and that the glory of God be known for this reason, that the worship of God may endure. Open the book. Describe God in clarity of who He says that He is through His Word that we might worship Him in spirit and in truth. That was the glory of Zion. And that was the glory that had departed. Now there were no people. The the word here, jackals, I think is lost on us a little bit. I I think a more near creature that we would understand is the fox. And if you've, ever, if you've ever been around a fox, they're really skittish creatures. They don't like people. Uh, when you show up, they, you tend to see their tail just running off. And what poetically Jeremiah is saying here, uh, when he says that jackals prowl over it, now we might, uh, you know, allegorize that and, and see the reality of the world and the Babylonians in the church, and, and, and there's a whole thought there, but I, I think that the proximate, just plain speak of what he's saying poetically is that this is a place where the people of God who were filled coming to the temple 
with a desire to hear about God and to worship God, those people have all been stripped away and now only these creatures that wouldn't show up when people are around remain. The, the jackals prowling over it is a poetic device to teach us the lamentable reality that the people of God set apart for the worship of God were no longer there. It's what we really learned in chapter 1, verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly. In our day, there seems to be, I think, an inability to see how bad things in the church really are. We, 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 we have lived so long in the, the church's declining, wait, I've got an idea kind of movements that we've started drinking the substitutes of man-centered religion as the outworking of the Spirit of God instead of God's Spirit actually manifesting the people of God coming together for the glory of God to worship the living God in spirit and in truth. So the question is, what will it take? What will it take that the church might rise again and the church might have, have her, her, her impact in our culture? There are some, and I think this is because, boy, eschatology can be a stumbling block. Um... And I'm not here to make an eschatological you know, indictment or statement this morning. Other, other than this, I, I think that, that we have to stop believing that God, any theology that tells you that God cannot move in our day and yet again bring revival, I, I, just, don't, I, just, don't, I just can't get my head around that. We'll, we'll, we're just waiting for the end and, and, and so we can set back and we don't need to be concerned with with promoting the gospel. And friends, I think part of the issue, man, this is all side trail, but part of the issue is this. So many of the man-centered schemes are so ingrained now in our heads that we have a hard time in the American church of seeing what the Bible actually says over and against what men have been teaching in this country for years. We have to unlearn what we've been taught that is not scriptural, and aim at the glory of God knowing that the only way, beloved, that in our generation we see the church built up again is not by the movements of men, but by the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. We must pray in that direction. Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Friends, we should beg that God would move afresh and anew in our generation. We should be utterly dependent upon Him to open the eyes of our neighbors. Can I tell you something? There's a whole generation of young people that depended upon the arguments of Robbie Zacharias to bring their classmates to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And we see how that wound up. And we've lived in the day of the great evangelist and the sawdust trail and that will ultimately bring about the, the, the flourishing of the church. That didn't work. Not for long anyway. And friends, don't hear me arguing that God doesn't use broken sticks to strike straight blows. God uses what is broken absolutely and uses what is imperfect to bring about His end result. That's true. But we don't want to aim at broken instruments. We want to aim at the Lord Jesus Christ and the moving of His Spirit in our generation. We're going to wait upon Him. So the question, why do we see so much national decay? Friends, I could tell you this morning that, that Mr. Biden, who we should pray for, even if we disagree with him radically, he could assemble this afternoon a consortium of the greatest minds in our day, doctors and politicians, sociologists, lawyers. And we could put them in the room and uh, kick them in the rear end and say, come up with a solution to why in the world our nation is in such decline. Boys can't figure out that they're boys and girls can't figure out that they're girls. That's how confused we are. Something came through my Facebook the other day. This, 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 and, uh, hmm. 
this news feed of some obese man that had painted his face blue and went to a, a school board meeting demanding that children be taught things that children should never be taught. And he demanded all of this emphatically because my name is Big Gay Baby. And I just thought the fact that we can all sit here and that this is even serious tells us where we are. But I promise you, nobody has an idea of how to fix it. Because, beloved, to to fix the problems that beset our nation would take the redemptive work of God. National decline is always the result of decline of faith and decline of trust in the Word of God among the nation. Here's the thing. We must be careful of standing in the church looking out at a nation that is imperiled in so many moral categories, in so many ways, and going, wow, the problem is out there. It may be out there today, but I, I promise you this, it started in here. It started when we left the Word of God. When we started believing that a man would have an idea or a group of men would have ideas that would bring about redemption. It does not happen. Men can bring about comfort. They can bring about temporal change. They can help in many areas. And I don't want you to hear me this morning decrying modern advancements in so many veins. But ultimately, men do not bring about redemption. We bring about sin. You see, a a people will not prosper until one thing happens. There's nothing else you hear from me today. Hear this. A nation will not prosper until a people, her people, are repentant. True repentance brings us first, not just to mourn over our personal loss, but over the state of the church as it is today. True repentance will see the reality that the crown has fallen. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And beloved, here is one thing that I'd have you watch out for. A type of preaching that would say the maximum end good is that you would feel good. That you would experience something in the here and now. Saving faith is not apart from our affections. It's not apart from our good. But oftentimes when we begin to walk in step with the Spirit, Christians experience suffering. The end result of preaching that will actually bring a nation to its knees in repentance does not issue forth with the goal of making men happy. It issues forth with the goal that God would be glorified and worshipped in spirit and in truth. Pause. Then we come, all of that's very heavy, and it should be. We see the reality that the crown has fallen, woe to us for we have sinned. We see the consequences of sin in so many veins of our lives. But verse 19, excuse me, verses 17 and 18 are not the final word. They lead to something glorious in verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Friends, that verse, if you're a highlighter, a circler, an annotator in your Bible, that's the verse. Whatever you need to do, that's the one. But you, O Lord, reign forever. This is the, the pivot that we find in many of the Psalms of Lament. That this, is, that this is the constant trajectory of the Word of God. People see their problems clearly. The psalmist sees the problem clearly. And he decries the problem. But the solution doesn't come until he takes his eyes off of the problem and he looks to the Lord. He sees the goodness of the reality that though there is this real connection between sin and suffering, beyond that problem is one who is enthroned forever. Beloved, the thing that we need to do in our nation more than anything else, more than getting into political conversations and skirmishes, and there's place for that. Not saying that we shouldn't do that. 
But more than that is that we are to lift our heads beyond the things in the here and now and consistently live our lives in a posture of worship. Things are consistently changing. And somebody recently said that immorality and liberalism move really slow until they don't. That is... That the way that, that, and I'm not just talking about political liberalism here, so don't be offended if you have, I, I'm, I'm not here for that primary purpose this morning. Uh, I, I'm talking about theological liberalism that would deny the veracity of the Word of God and, and, and the moral implications of the Word of God and all of those things. And, and the way that we have seen throughout history that, that, those think, that type of thinking creeps into the churches is it's always really slow. It's, it's just bit by bit by bit. And, and, and friends, I grieves my heart that in my own life there are times as I'm growing in the Word of God, I go, oh my goodness, I, I have just adopted a view that is antithetical to Scripture. And I have to experience repentance in that area. But what we find is that in our personal lives and in the church together creeps in little by little until all of a sudden there is this snowball and everything starts moving really fast. Well, fr friends, in our culture today, things are moving really fast, aren't they? And I can think about when I was in high school, if big gay baby showed up to the, 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 the school board meeting, big gay baby would have had a problem. Not the school board. Friends, the reality is, uh, in light of that, in light of the fact that uh, this is the temptation, the world in our culture is spinning radically out of control. No one in this room should, should deny that fact. But the temptation in light of a culture that is, is careening off of, of, of what is right is we will be tempted to respond in sinful ways towards that culture. But we need to be reminded that while things in this life are spinning out of control, and I would contend with you this morning that what Jeremiah and the people of God in Lamentations had experienced was a society out of control, untethered from the Word of God. Here Jeremiah does something very pastoral. He acknowledges that the throne has fallen. The crown has, has fallen, that, that they had sinned, that their culture had been completely devastated. But then he comes back in verse 19 to say this, Beloved, God is not moved. He hasn't changed. His attributes remain to this day. Friends, the world can clamor and all of the different sociological viewpoints can be thrown around inside the public sphere, but our God remains on the throne. He has not changed. So the question is, what do we do in times like this, in times of suffering? Friends, I think that we need a fresh view that God is sovereignly ruling over all things. Again, here, the, the throne of Judah had fallen, but but Matthew Henry points out wisely, not the throne of God. He goes on to describe that throne as the throne of glory and of grace and of government, unchanging and immovable. What we really need at a time when the whole society has fallen is not to start with somebody that says, hey, I have an idea but to come back before the throne of grace and worship in spirit and in truth. The reason here that we need to be reminded that, that, that God's throne endures is because He's the one who's established it. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even... You, excuse me, or ever you had formed the earth and world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is 
I think so important to grasp. Here is a people, again, whose crown has fallen, whose king is in prison, and, and, and here Jeremiah shows up and, you, and he reminds the people, this is an enslaved people. Think about the weight of this statement. They've been carried away. Their daughters, their wives have been brutalized. Their young men are, are staggering under loads of wood, work, slavery, all of those things. And Jeremiah has the audacity to say, God is enthroned. Yes and amen. In spite of all of our suffering, Jeremiah knows that the greatest thing that a besieged people can hear is that God is sovereign, that He rules even yet. It's in fact the very argument that James has when he says that in God there is not a shadow due to change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What Jeremiah is saying here is, Lord, your temple has lost its glory. Your people have lost their crown. The nation has been given over to the world. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. And so the question comes, what are we left with? If that is true, if the world has been carried away and the lost refuse to worship the living God. Friends, I know that we were all brought up in a time, and there's a place for this, with religious toleration being a founding principle that we grew up with. You worship your God, I'll worship my God, and all of that's okay. That's part of the American ethos, isn't it? Isn't it? just so happens that that was, that was one of those times when someone showed up and said, hey, I have an idea. Because the reality is, whether or not you are in Christ this morning, there is a holy God, and you as a creature that He has made, owe Him your reverence and worship. And to withhold that from Him is robbery. Well, we have an entire generation that thinks... That worship is left up to the preferences and pleasures of men. But it's not. Worship centers around the living God. And so I want you to see, while all of the world has been carried off, while Jerusalem and and the people of God here are, are carried into physical captivity... God's giving them something very beautiful and and hope to hold on to. And really, this is where the the crescendo comes in these last three verses. Here in verse 20, Jeremiah asks two parallel questions. Why Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? He feels forsaken. He speaks on behalf of the the nation there. But, but we must remember that verse 20 is bookended with the answer to the question. In verse 19, there is the reality that while they feel forsaken, God is on His throne. He's encouraging the people in that way. And then in verse 21, we see this reality. Restore us to Yourself, O Lord that we may be restored. What Jeremiah is telling his people is God is on His throne and He is establishing a people for His own name's sake. That's what He's been doing in every generation. God is not content, beloved. This is what we want in the here and now. Restore our fortunes. Restore our nation. Give us physical comfort. And I want to encourage you this morning, we can pray for those things, and God does not aim at less, but more. Ultimately, God here is restoring His people to worship in righteousness according to His Word. And He is not going to stop short of that reality. What God is doing as He is sitting on His throne is He is working out repentance for His people. Repentance is a complete change. Friends, this is so important that we understand what repentance is. 
I think one of those man-centered ideas is repentance means you come to the front of the aisle, you sign a card, and you become a member of a church. That's repentance. Maybe. Repentance, rather, is a change of heart and of mind and of will. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. What God is enthroned and working out is the restoration of His people to Himself. And here we have a picture in a well-known parable of what genuine repentance really looks like. Starting in verse 11. Parable of the prodigal son. And He said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young, younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a servant, excuse me, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods of, that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We see the threefold reality in this one passage. In verse 17, the Bible says he came to himself. He had a change of mind. God had providentially put him in a situation where he squandered the very thing that he thought would redeem his life. Give me my inheritance. Friends, how many times have I seen people thinking that their, their redemption is in their inheritance? I promise you it's not there. And so he comes to this point where he is at the lowest of the low and the Bible says he comes to himself. That is, he has a change of mind. And then in verse 18, he says... Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. That is, he has a change of heart. He realizes that the way he is related to his father is not the way that it should be. And so he has a change of heart. And then in verse 20, we see this reality. And he arose and he came to his father. He had a change of will. A change of, of mind, a change of heart, and a change of will. And we know how the story ends. The father greets him, throws his robe around him, throws a feast, and welcomes him home. Wonderful. Friends, what I want you to see in this passage is the reality that with our heavenly father, unlike this earthly father, he not only brings us home, he's the one who grants the repentance in the first place. Do you think that in the economy of lamentations that the nation of Israel would have thought, well, we got ourselves into this mess. We've been sold into Babylonian captivity. Our fathers are dead because of their sin. Do you think there was somebody that rose up and said, wait, I've got an idea to get us out of this? Do you know what they would have said to him? Shut up and sit down. In fact, that was the whole problem in Jeremiah anyway, was that there were prophets who would stand up and say, wait, I've got an idea. They would flaunt all of their following and everybody loving the fact that they said, peace, peace. And friends, for the majority of the existence of our nation beyond the Declaration of Independence, the main theology of America has said we can work about repentance in our own volition. We can concoct a system 
where we give men repentance. That's nonsense. Absolute no way that we generate repentance, that we generate the solution on our own. The, the language that Jeremiah uses, again, doesn't give room for that. These are people, look at verses 17 and 18. They're sick. Their eyes have grown dim. They're not able to bring themselves out of, God, uh, of captivity. God Himself tells them that He will have to deliver them from captivity. You see, the reality of sin is that we can't set ourselves free from the consequences. And so not only does God have to show us our sin, He has to send His Son to bear our iniquity, to be the wrath-bearing sacrifice. And that's not even enough. He then has to regenerate our hearts and turn us back to Himself. And that's really what verse 21 is all about. Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. That we would walk in the light again. That we would desire God. That we would long for His name to be great among the nations. Part of the problem of, of, of the people of Israel at this time is they had gotten so accustomed to being the apple of God's eye and they thought they were the end purpose to everything about the nation. But the nation was set among all of the other nations for one purpose. Do you know what that was? To make His name great among the earth. God help us when we think the church exists for our comfort and our joy in circumstances here and now. The church exists for the glory of God. That His name would be made great among the nations. There is not a greater... Listen, friends. How many times have you heard Matthew chapter 8 preached by a missionary? Many, correct? It's not a bad missional passage. But can I tell you... Can I tell you what passage they should be using as a missionary passage? Everything from Genesis to Revelation... The entire Word of God is about God making His glory known to sinful creatures of the earth. There is not one passage that is devoid of missional emphasis in some form or fashion. And that was a bonus. But you see, here's the point. What God is doing, when we, when we hear the lament of Jeremiah and we hear that, that the children are dying in the streets because they have no bread and, and, and all of the sociological problems and, and the king has been carried off and the princes have been killed and all of their material possessions have been spoiled, even the icon of their government, the crown, thrown down. What do we intend often in our hearts immediately? Oh, that's so painful. And it is. But it points us to a greater need beyond all of those temporary things. God doesn't just want to restore the crown. God wants to restore the people. He's bringing them back to Himself. And when we say restoring the people, that's not just making them bastions of righteousness, although that's part of it. Restoring His people back to having the righteousness to worship Him rightly. That's what God is doing. That's what God's doing today, beloved. He's turning us back with something better than we had before. And that is a reason to worship Him. A greater reason. When God brings a sinner back, He brings us back with hearts so thankful that He has crowned us with His own righteousness through the work of the Spirit. You see, this isn't about just getting a crown back. It's not about getting the nation back and about getting a priesthood back. This is about getting God back at the center of the lives of the people of God. And repentance is not ultimately then about being good, although I think that's a byproduct. Repentance is about getting the, gl the glory of God back at the, as the focus of the people of God. 
Repentance is not about getting back the, the good old days. It's about turning back to the God who sets on the throne from everlasting to everlasting. Jeremiah verse, verse 16 of chapter 6. The Lord, thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. God's saying, come back and look at what I've done in the past. I've restored you. I've redeemed you. I've given you reason to worship. Look back at my, my redemptive works and know that I'm on my throne doing those very same things. Do you know what the answer of the people is when they are told? Look back to the old paths. Worship in accordance with my word. That's what the old paths are. Do you know what, they, what, what the Bible records of Jeremiah? Or of Israel? Thus says the Lord, stand by the old roads and look. Ask for the servants, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Lamentations makes a whole lot more sense when you understand that's the reality. Humanity constantly going about the problem of their sin thinking, I have a solution, I'll walk in my own way. We must have a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of will. And friends, here's the problem today in the church. It's not that there won't be pastors who stand up and use the word repentance. They will. But they'll define repentance differently than a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of will that brings us back to the Word of God that we might see the glory of God and worship God in spirit and in truth according to the Spirit of God. Friends, I would contend with you this morning that it's blasphemy to say that God grants a repentance that does not contain all three of those things. That God would give us repentance, but He would stop short of changing our actions. There's a whole vein of theology that says that. Well, God will justify me, but I can live however I want. Friends, that is not the way that God redeems. That is the equivalent of in, of, of, in Jeremiah and this whole exile reality of God saying, Israel, I'm going, to, I'm going to send you out that I might restore you unto myself, but then I'm going to leave you out there. I'm not actually going to cause you to walk in my ways. A change of, heart, a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of will. Now, I want to caveat all of that. God, when He works about a true repentance in the life of an individual, He does it in the mind, in the heart, and in the will. It comes out in our actions. That might lead some of you to think, so does He just zap us? The holy zap theology, I've talked about that before. That is that God just kind of, and then all of a sudden you are this, you know, completely sanctified Nazarene. Some of you will get that denominational reference later. That's not the way that God works. Look at, at Jeremiah chapter 29 with me, and we're almost done. Starting in verse 4, this is the letter that was written uh, uh, by Jeremiah from Jerusalem to the surviving elders and exiles, to the priests and to the prophets of all the people that Nebuchadnezzar had taken away. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among them deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. Those guys that say, hey, I've got an idea. He's talking about them. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for, for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all of the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. How does God work about repentance in the hearts and lives of His people over a lifetime? Day in and day out. It looks like nothing new under the sun. The normal happenings of life come and go, and yet God is setting upon His throne, ruling and reigning. Day by day, God brings us back to Himself. Jack Lewis, I have two, three quotes and we'll be done. One super short. Day by day, God gives grace in the form of repentance to conform His children into the image of His Son, to bring us back. Jack Lewis, writing to a friend, said this, As you say, the thing is to rely only upon God. The time will come when you will regard all this misery as a small price to pay for having been brought to that dependence. Meanwhile, don't I know, the trouble is that relying on God has to begin all over again every day as yet nothing had been done. Friends, every morning when your eyes open, the first thought I hope for you will be in light of lamentations, another day to repent and to be restored into the image of God. Another day that I might be met with so many adversaries and difficulties and sufferings that I know my Heavenly Father rules over using as the very instruments in His hand to make me utterly dependent upon Him and Him alone. Second quote comes from a man named Thomas Scott. You guys gave me the books. Your fault, not mine. Various tribulations, he says, may make our hearts faint and our eyes dim. But our way to the mercy seat of our, of our reconciled God is still open. And we may beseech Him not to forsake or forget us and plead with Him to turn and renew us more and more by His grace that our hopes may revive and our consolations abound as in days of old. For the eternal and unchangeable God will not utterly reject His church or any true believer, whatever our trials, fears, or lamentations may be. Let us then, in all of our troubles, put our whole trust and confidence in His mercy. Let us confess our sins and pour out our hearts before Him before him and let us watch against despondency whatever we suffer or witness of the trouble of our brothers and sisters in Christ for this we surely know that it shall be well in the event with all who trust fear and love and serve the Lord and the final quote is this John Piper wrote to a young man who experienced the difficulty of losing a child in infancy and his simple exhortation I think is the encouragement that we find in these last verses of lamentations keep trusting the one that keeps you trusting would you pray with me Father God you are the one who has ultimately brought us to trust in you so we ask almighty God that as you have in past times executed judgment as severe as these that we find in lamentations against your people, grant that these realities of your chastisement may today teach us to fear your name and to keep watch over our own souls with humility that we might strive to pursue the course of our calling, that we might always seek to glorify your name, that we might always long to be at home with you, that we know and are comforted in the reality that one day you will bring us home 
as we rest in you to see your glory and all of the present difficulties all of the present sufferings will be nothing compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us father today if there's one here that has never considered the weight of their own sin and that you are holy father that there's not in you a shadow of unrighteousness or injustice and yet they look over their lives and they see the reality of their unrighteousness father might you cause them to turn in repentance would you give them a change of mind a change of heart and a change of will that they might live their lives not for their own glory and their own appetites but for your glory alone and father for those of us today here that are in christ we thank you that you've given us that change in some measure but we ask for more of it we ask father that you would use all of the events of our lives not for our comfort but for your glory that you would keep us trusting you